0: This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, welcome to the Greg Scheinman Podcast. On the show today, Adam Nelson, two-time Olympic medalist, a gold in 2004, and silver in in 2000, mm-hmm. 2000, graduate of Dartmouth and current COO of the D10 Decathlon, an event and cause near and dear to my heart. Adam, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Greg. Awesome. I am glad you could join us. So we originally met um, through the D10 Decathlon mm-hmm. when you first relocated down here to, to Houston to, to join that team. Tell me a little bit about the, about the decision to relocate uh, your family and come down to Houston to, to take this on.
1: Well, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, we were living in Athens, Georgia at the time, and I'd been working for a sports marketing company at the time. and I'd, know, I'd met Dave, uh, the founder of the D10, about six or seven years earlier, six years ago maybe, seven years ago. And he was running another company uh, called Charity Bets at the time, and I'd done a charity bet with him when I was still competing. And he called me kind of out of the blue and said, hey, I need some help here. What's your status right now? I said, well, I can be available. And so we started talking, and he's telling me about what he's doing with the D10. And for me, uh, finding a way to combine my passion for sports and strength conditioning and this philanthropic side, uh, which we do quite well uh, with raising money for pediatric oncology research and treatment, um, was just, is a perfect opportunity. The move from Athens to Houston was a little bit tough. It's a little bit larger city than Athens, Georgia is, just a smidge. <laughs> but uh, my wife was on board for it, and, and my kids uh, are at an age where it's easy to move. And so Dave and I just kept talking, realized we could work well together, and I ended up moving here in May.
0: Nice. Well, we are we're glad to have you, uh, certainly in the West University area of Houston. So, married, kids, dogs, which I see you walking around too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, give me the family kind of dynamic, the background, the <laughs> Olympic athlete into family life.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I met my wife while I was training in Athens, um, so the Olympics has given me uh, probably – most of every, the opportunities that I've had in almost every aspect of my life. Um, when I, I graduated from Dartmouth in 1997, and like most people coming out of uh, Dartmouth was being you know, recruited by consulting and banking firms, and that was sort of the typical path. But uh, for some reason, I, you know, I listened to my track coach one day and he said, I think you can do this, and I, I chose the way more lucrative path of throwing the shot put. Um, so I ended up moving out to California been training at Stanford University for three years and that was uh, there's so many stories of, uh, of making that decision making that commitment uh, but it ended up bringing me back to Georgia in 2001 and I was training at the University of Georgia and I met my wife there and uh, you know we ended up going to grad school having our first kid uh, in, in Charlottesville Virginia and then moved back to Athens afterwards um, my wife's fantastic she's she comes from an athletic family her dad played pro football and and uh she was a swimmer and then uh, my children are six and nine so we're still figuring out who they are but
0: they've got pretty strong personalities as they are right now very cool let me ask you a little bit also so dartmouth you played football i did also um uh, how did you like how does one get into the shot put you know i mean obviously you're a you're big guy sure. you played football um uh, <clears throat> But a shot put's not something kids are just throwing around you right. know, growing up. And when does that happen where you say, I, I got a chance to, to learn this and do this and then realize even as like you said that, that I'm good enough at this to take a real shot, no pun no pun intended, yeah.
1: Yeah, so no, it's 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 kind of a funny story. So I was in eighth grade and we my family had just moved back to Atlanta from, from uh from D C. Um, my dad had been working for the government and uh, I was playing football and and I wrestled that year and then in the spring I was going to go play baseball and it was like day one of baseball tryouts as an eighth grader and we had a very our high school program was very good and our eighth grade program was very good that I think they'd won state at the time like three years in a row or something like that and so I was going out for tryouts and I'd never been really cut from any team at at all at this point and it was day one and the, the coach calls me into his office afterwards and I'm thinking it's like gonna be the attaboy speech, right? And it was the exact opposite. I didn't even make it past, uh, past day one. He said, not, he actually said point blank. He said, you're just not good enough and you never will be. Uh, you need to go do something else. Uh, I don't think you can talk that way to children anymore, <laughs> <coughs> but I was okay with it. I, I, so I, at that point I decided I was gonna focus on football, training, getting ready for football. And I went home and my dad said, well, or you could get a job. And the job opportunities for an eighth grader in Atlanta, Georgia in 1990 or 1988 uh, were not that great. Um, and uh, he said you could do an after school, another after school activity or you could get a job. So I opted for the other after school activity. Track didn't have a cut policy, so I knew I'd be on there. And I knew also knew I could train for football, which is what I really wanted to do. Fast forward over the years, I got bigger. And so I started doing fewer running events and started focusing more and more on the throws. And then by the time I was a junior, I was number one in the state and senior year in high school. I won the national championships for high school kids uh, in the shop, put. went on to do it in college. And my college coach kept telling me, uh, you know, you've got an opportunity to do this. You've, you've got an opportunity to do this. And, and oddly enough, uh, I don't think I actually heard him and thought I had the opportunity to go on to the Olympics until I was confronted with that same decision of get a job or grow, or or, or, uh, or find you know it was time to get a job again. Uh, so it was really my senior spring, and I just finished a, uh, a very good season. Ended up winning national championships outdoors that year, uh, Division One, um, and um, went back. and My coach said, "Look, I think you've got a you've got a gift." you really need to pursue this. And it was the right time for me to hear that message. It was kind of funny. I had an interview afterwards. um, And uh, I remember it was like the last time spot of the day for this interview. And it was clear that the guy didn't want to be there doing the interview, and I didn't really want to be there either. And I was about five minutes into it, and I said, it's clear that you don't want to be here, and I don't want to be here, so I appreciate your time. I'm going to go. And I went, went and saw my college coach, and I said, how would this work? And uh, we started making some connections, and I found myself a few months later moving out to
0: uh, California. How does it work? So
1: like,
0: <laughs> like what is or or who is the like the prototypical shot putter? Yeah. What is a day in the life of a of a shot putter training is? I mean. You're a big guy. I mean, right. People are listening to this. How big are you? <laughs> well, I, I'm
1: small for a shot putter. So okay. uh, my, my competition weight varied between 257 and 270. Um, basically, as I got older, I gained about a pound or two every year. Um, but um, I'm six feet tall and about 265 was my, plan, was my normal, probably my average uh, competition weight. And um, most of the guys I compete against are about six feet, Uh, 6'4", and probably 320 to 380. Wow. So they're big guys. Um, My my strength was my ability to to my speed, my athleticism for the size that I am. And uh, how it works, we kind of train like a, like a, maybe like an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman, depending on who you are. Um, There's a lot of lifting, a lot of sprinting, a lot of jumping. Uh, Biomechanists call shot putters the most powerful athletic expression, like the event of the shot put. Uh, we take a 16 pound ball and throw it you know, as far away from us as possible. And uh, world class is just over 70 feet. And I threw close to 74. So, um, you know, the details of our training, we, a combination of powerlifting, Olympic lifting, sprinting, jumping, and throwing, and throwing all sorts of stuff. Like, you don't just throw
0: the shot put. Mm-hmm. So, this obviously goes well right for you, and you get into get into the Olympics. Uh, the The story that interested me also uh, within the Olympics, and, and tell me if I if I just get this right, was you were originally awarded a silver medal, and this was in the two thousand yeah. games, but ultimately, you you were given you were awarded the gold medal <coughs> years later. It was it right. like eight, eight years or so later. Eight,
1: eight years later, so. Uh, in 2000, I won the silver medal. I uh, lost by uh, two inches to a Finnish athlete. And in 2004, uh, the way that competition—that was—I also was awarded the silver medal at the time. Um, so, the, it's uh, the 2004 Olympic competition for shot put was contested in the ancient Olympic stadium in Olympia, Greece, which is amazing if you're a history buff at all and you want to go just sort of feel and experience a piece of history. Uh, this place to me is, it, it's it's pretty awesome. You enter the, through the ruins of the the ancient buildings and such, and go into this stadium, which is basically a big, you know, bowl, if you will. Um, uh, but they still have like the arch that you walk in through this little. It's pretty cool. Um, but this is the birthplace that birthplace of really all really all modern sports, like as we, as we see it, like this was the first time people had formally organized sports and had them contested in one location. Um, and, um, pretty amazing place. And, and I led that. Co- so in this, in the Olympic competition, there's 60 full th- 60 throws across eight, tw- we'll call it 12 athletes, but it, it cuts down to eight after the first three throws. Um, but there's 60 throws in that competition. And I was leading for the first 50, uh, 58 of them. The first throw I go out and I I take the lead. Um, On the 59th throw of that competition, an athlete from the Ukraine tied my best mark and his second best mark was farther than mine. And so he would win in the tiebreaker. So this is in the Olympic games, the birthplace of the Olympics. Uh, There were about 20, 25,000 people there just to see the shot put. And I've got to step in on my final throw, uh, throw farther to win. This is these are those moments that you dream of as a little boy. Maybe you didn't believe dream of this specific moment. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was the Super Bowl or the World Series. You're up to bat and you gotta knock on. You know, you've gotta you've gotta do something. And uh, I can remember everything about that day. It was uh, it was hot, super hot, and dust was all over the place because this 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 stadium really just had a dust floor. And you know, there was a mixture of cheers and boos and. I just remember stepping in the circle for that last throw and putting the steel ball against my neck and feeling that coolness, and then the world went quiet. And when it finally exploded back to life, the shot put was leaving my hand. I saw it land farther than it had any other throw had of the day by about a foot and a half or two. And I raised my hands in victory, thinking I just won the Olympic Games in like that sort of storybook ending. And looked over to my left and saw a red flag raise, indicating that I fouled. Um, pretty hard to, to hard uh pretty pretty challenging to to experience that in real time uh in front of lots of cameras and people and uh you know at that time I thought the competition was over uh but apparently it wasn't um the guy was caught cheating uh, he'd been Eight years later, came up that came out that he was, in fact, involved with a cover-up. Uh, and, and when they retroactively tested 100 samples from the 2004 Olympic Games, five of them tested positive for uh, different steroids. And uh, he was one of the athletes that did. I found out in a phone call from the German, uh, uh, well, from a, um, the Associated Press from Germany had leaked this information about these samples being tested. Uh, and I got a call from a reporter in July of two thousand twelve uh, about a month before the two thousand london olympics and um she said, "Have you heard anything?" and I said, "You know the rule number one when you talk to a reporter is you want to make sure that you know what they're asking so I was like mm-hmm. Got to clarify, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And she told me the story uh, and said, Five athletes have tested positive. I said, No, I haven't heard anything. And I don't hear anything again for the next month. And there's an eight year statute of limitations that clicked over during the Olympic Games. She calls me back after the 2012 Olympic Games in London, uh, the end of August, first of September, and says, uh, Have you heard anything? I said, No, I haven't heard anything. What's going on? I said, Well, the IOC is supposed to rule. On your, on, on your case and vacate or reallocate the positions. I said, well, I haven't heard anything. And about a month later, she gives me a call and says, hey, look, the meeting's today. And while we're on the call, uh, the news goes out. And uh, she says, oh, my God, you're the Olympic gold medalist. Uh, it took me about another year to get my medal. Uh, I picked it up in the food court at the Atlanta airport. So uh, I jokingly tell people, uh, you know, whenever I go through the Atlanta airport, I get to revisit where I won a medal, uh, where I received a medal, and you know, it was right outside of a Burger King, so it did come with a side order of fries. You know, it's like it's it sort of cheapens that experience, but um, yeah. So I was uh, one of the first athletes to be rewarded to be awarded uh, retroactively a gold medal due to someone testing positive in a retroactive drug test.
0: That is some some kind of. Roller coaster of, of of emotions that I can't even fathom what what that's like because such an what should be and will be an incredible moment of even being awarded the silver medal up mm-hmm. there in in Athens mm-hmm, had to be so conflicting emotionally at the time and then to be receiving the gold medal somewhat unceremoniously such a long time later um, yeah. but still earned and deserved has got to be you know how do you sit i mean i guess it's it, how much i guess i'm not even sure what i'm going by like, how do you sit with all of that now <laughs> and just the way you kind of ex- explain it through i mean it has to take considerable time to, well, to kind of wrap your head and, and your heart around it right
1: i mean time does heal all wounds um it was a hard time. I mean, when you the thing is that the hardest medal, the, the the worst medal to win and that sounds horrible, at an Olympic Games is a silver medal and they've since proven this with psycholo- with studies of uh, psychological studies of athletes and um, particularly in my scenario where literally um, from, you know between 2000 and 2004 at the time I lost out on two Olympic gold medals at least in the moment by less than 2 inches cumulatively between them. So that's, that's, the dis, that's the difference between first and second and so whenever you run a, whenever you win a silver medal you're always thinking well if only I'd been I, I could, what I was almost there and if you get a bronze you're just happy to have a medal. So silver is really the worst place. Um, after the 2004 Olympics uh, pr- pretty much was dropped by my sponsor um, I went without a sponsor for the next Three years, and those ended up being some of the most productive years of my life. But it just timing was horrible, and in this country, they only value the gold medal. Um, I can't say that right afterwards I was uh, the nicest person to be around. Um, my wife is an amazing woman, and she uh, she basically would kick my butt and say, "You got to snap out of this." And I was just angry. I was angry for for a number of, uh, months following that. Uh, my wife knows when I'm angry is when I really go out and spend like, you know, 15 hours out in the yard for like seven (laughs) days at a time or 10 days at a time. And she comes home and it's like completely redone. And, um, but, um, you know, it, it took me a long time to get over it, but I start, what what ended up happening was, uh, in 2005, I woke up every single day, just angry at everybody. I was angry at, uh, WADA because I was pretty sure, or the, the anti-doping agencies, because I was pretty sure that the guy was doping. I was angry at my previous sponsor because they basically told me I wasn't worth much, that I was only, in fact, in their words, I think I was uh, I was just pretty good at losing. Um, you know, and I was angry because I'd see athletes that weren't nearly as accomplished. I'd won the silver in 2000, silver in the 2001 World Championships, silver in the 2003 World Championships, and silver in the 2004 Olympic Games at the time. Um, which was not um, it 's not a resume that that 's too lacking it 's a pretty strong resume, and it was frustrating because I started evaluating uh, my worth based off how much I was making from uh sponsors and versus other people and and uh that just was not a healthy place to be so i um but i kept i doubled down and every single day i 'd wake up and I'd, i won 't repeat exactly what i said but I literally wake up with a big chip on my shoulder and would say two or maybe three words um, and um, would start my dra- day training again. I started training so passionately for, uh, to, so it wouldn't repeat itself. I mean, I was more disciplined and more dedicated uh, than I'd ever been and uh, found myself going into the 2005 World Championships pretty confident in my ability to win and ended up winning my first World Championship, uh, my only World Championship that year. And uh, I don't think I could have done it without without that experience. Um, I think I probably would have retired had I won the 2004 Olympics, but um, at least retired from sport. But um, so to answer your question specifically, it took me a long time to deal with it. And then when it get when, when you finally sort of package it up and put it away, it comes back to surface eight years ago, and all the things that you built your life around, all the all the things that like drove you and defined who you were, you realize were based on. Um, a reality that wasn't necessarily supposed to be. And that's frustrating too because then you get this gold medal and you think, oh, I should be happy about this. But th- my first experiences holding a gold medal were of my, of my own, was not one of joy and excitement and thrill. It was, oh man, I, I, it was lost opportunity, lost time. Um, and it took me, it took me a while to get over that too. Uh, at the end of the day, what I realized is that I never started to do this. I didn't start training just to win an Olympic gold medal. I started training uh, for the Shoppa because I loved it and because it was it was a lot of fun for me. Um, and uh, I think that at some at some point, I realized that the medals are the medals are, are only reflective of a specific moment in time. Um, they're a snapshot. And if you base your happiness off those snapshots, you're not going to be happy very often because they just they're few and far between, and I was most happiest I was ha- most happiest there you go, speaking like a shot putter. <laughs> um, I was happiest when I was knee deep in the in the grind and just working through it, and so what I started going back to was like, look every in every competition you know there's only going to be one winner, but there are so many victories along the way that if you, if you only define yourself off those, off those wins, when everybody is watching, you're going to be a very, very disappointed person most of your life. And I just realized like, look, it's not, it's not the outcome. It's the process that I use to get that outcome. And even my, 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 my default out but the default process, while it wasn't always a gold medal worthy process, it was still pretty darn good. Mm. So I just kind of took joy in that. And, um, and then there's the underlying message too, which I think is pretty is is not spoken about enough. Although it's been popping its head up again, uh, which is the importance of of doing things the right way. I was very lucky uh, not to be around people that ever promoted drugs and sports or ever thought that this was a so- solution to a problem. It was always like we can figure this out. Let's 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 figure this out. Cheating was never an option for me. So um, I don't think that goes. I, I think I think there's a lot of people out there that believe that. Uh, it's okay, Uh it's okay to do this. I can remember uh Lance Armstrong justifying some of his decisions because everybody else was doing it. Right. Uh, you know what, at some point you've got a choice. You, you can be the one that breaks the mold or you can be the one that follows everybody else. And um, I never thought of myself as breaking any molds. I was probably willfully ignorant. But, um, you know, there is a right way and a wrong way to do something. And so I also take some joy... Uh, and a lot of pride in the fact that I'm the only person in my event in the history of my event to win a World Championships and Olympic Games, um, and I think I'm the only person to to win. Uh, I know I'm the only person to win both, but um, I was probably one of the first people to do so without uh, any any. Um, no, I won't say that. I don't. Th- I don't think that. I don't think that's fair, and I won't say that. But but my point is that you know I've, I was able to attain a very high level. Without uh, without having to cheat, so mm-hmm.
0: really really amazing amazing stuff. When you talk about that process, also that you you went through. I mean, obviously you've talked about your wife as inspiration and being there for you. Who else is Who else is in that process with you? Kind of, I guess, your your inner circle or your mentors or coaches sure. or friends or training training partners. Because even though this is an individual sport, you know, yeah. and it's you there with the sixteen pound all up again. I mean, it, it takes a lot of people. I would, I mean, and the discipline that you have to have to train through that, through that whole process. Sure. Who's in your, who is in your world? I and mean, is still probably in your world, you know, now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was lucky to work with a number of great coaches. Um, one of the things about uh, Olympic sports and particularly my event, uh, as, as one of my sponsors said to me, the less your event looks like the hundred, the mile or the marathon, uh, the less valuable you are financially. Um, and so as because the shot put doesn't look anything like either of those events, uh, any of those events. We're pretty low on the totem pole. So while we have the same demands and needs as, you know, an NFL or MLB player, we don't have the same resources. So it's very important to surround yourself with great people uh, who also don't necessarily see a paycheck as the as the reason to have a relationship yep. with you, at least not directly. Um, so I had access. I trained, spent most of my time training at the university of Georgia and Georgia the university was, was, was kind enough to allow us full access to their facilities. So all of their weight rooms, all of their athletic training staff, um, you know, had fantastic coaches, uh, along the way, um, and in, in every area when I was out at Stanford, when I was, uh, at, at grad school in Virginia, when I was back at the university of Georgia as well. Um, as well as some additional medical staff, like you've got to find chiropractors and massage therapists that don't aren't necessarily like close
0: by, and, and you, I, not credit, you have to do that yourself. Yeah. Okay. So again, unlike joining a team, you know whether it's college football, even you know, and then getting drafted and, move, and things start happening for you or yeah. provided for you, you know, this is fascinating to me. I mean, you guys, you have to do this yourself.
1: Yeah. And you screw up a lot that's the funny thing you meet people that say they're really good at something and they might be really good at it it just doesn't work on you um so for for me it was just it was you know for me it was like well I, you make a couple mistakes early on particularly when it comes to recovery like so you know you get little nags and nicks and bumps and bruises and things like that and you know the first inclination for i think most men anyway is to say, oh, it's just, i'm okay i'm okay and so we'll ignore it and ignore it and ignore it and then it becomes an issue and the issue has to have a medical treatment like you either got to go to a doctor and what is it most doctors are going to say well we're going to inject you with cortisone or some sort of anti-inflammatory painkiller or they're going to say no we're going to cut you open and fix it and in my experiences were never really good solutions because you never came back stronger um, or it would prolong your uh, prolong, prolong your recovery period so uh, you know for me i just had to find the right find the right the right types of treatments and fortunately um i was also I was was able to meet people through the national teams and international levels, uh, international athletes that I knew who could say, yeah, you need to find somebody that does this specific type of treatment. So in 19, I mean, this is really pre-internet, too, a lot of this stuff. Um, People didn't have websites all over the place promoting this and that. So, like, finding someone who's skilled at ART or active release technique and massage may be a lot easier today than it was 20 years ago when it was first starting, starting. I mean, I think Mike Levy just first just started it at that point in 1995 or six. So it was just getting out there, you know, finding someone who's good with acupuncture, um, dry needling or, or any other variation of it. Um, you just, you had to search for, and it took a lot of time. Um, I think what I found is, is, uh, that, uh, for me, what ended up happening, the best thing for me was, was as soon as I recognized some sort of tweak, being aggressive with it from the start, okay, mm-hmm. I have to find somebody to do this because once I found somebody it, sh- it it would certainly get better. But if I didn't find somebody, I'd still have the six weeks of recovery or two weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it was. So um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think I went down yeah. a different different <laughs> path there, but uh. right.
0: So I want to ask also about the the transition okay yeah. from pro Olympic athlete mm-hmm. okay, to let's go real uh, back to normal normal life okay you decide that you're going to retire from from the sport Uh, and now you've got to make that that adjustment okay now i guess that that decision of (laughs) hey you can keep you could throw or you could get a job you know you Mm -hmm. could just now it's okay i have to i've retired from from the sport tell me a little bit about about that and and your decision again to me not to I'm not going to go right into coaching, you know, right. or, or whatever. Maybe then I'm <coughs> going to I'm going to look again. You're, you're a smart guy. You are know, Dartmouth, and then you said your post postgraduate degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me about the about that transition and the <coughs> athlete mindset going into kind of the the workforce.
1: I think the transitions is it's really scary for a lot of athletes. For me, I thought I, I thought I had it all figured out. I, I I that's why I went to grad school. So I went to I got my business degree at uh, Virginia. And graduated there in 2008 and then found myself making the same decision to go back and throw again and so the plans that i had put in place before 2000 uh, really before going to grad school i kind of put on the back burner Uh, and then i was was thinking oh i can restart these pretty easy but the problem is that uh, as one of my good friends who's a three-time world champion um, in the shot put said to me he's like the problem is that you've had the greatest job you'll ever have meaning I really enjoyed it. I made enough money to be happy and not really have any financial concerns at the time, uh, but not enough money to retire off of. Uh, and so, so it, it's a, it's a real challenge. And, and I know that that there's a saying out there that says, uh, you know, you only uh, let's see, you only work until you find something you love doing, and then you never work another day in your life, mm-hmm, or something yeah. like that. Um, but I totally butchered that. But um, but. Uh, I I don't think that's the case for most of us, and so for me it was finding out what what uh, what percent of my day was I capable, was was I was I willing to sort of sacrifice and say this is stuff that I really hate doing, but mm-hmm. I've got to do it in other and, and so it took a little time. Um, but I also knew that, that, that there was a specific areas of, of industry that I wanted to stay involved with, whether it was the strength and conditioning side or the sports marketing side or something that would allow me to get stay involved mm-hmm. at least arm's length with what I've been doing for the yeah. last 20 years or 15 years. And um, it took me a little while to figure it out, uh, and I still haven't figured it out, but uh, it's it's a process. I mean, coming here was a big step forward for me and taking on this position with the D10 has been, uh, just a – it's been a phenomenal experience. I mean, there's just a ton of great people that, that, that either participated in our events or that we work with on a regular basis. Um, I've learned so much from working with this group, and I, I have, I've also understood – also, I've also figured out that um, going back to one of the comments about process or – like, I love process, so as long as that process feels like I'm progressing towards mm-hmm. something, that's the thing that I love. And I can apply that to any industry, any, any job out there. As long as there's a process, a process that I'm engaged in that I feel like we're moving the dial or moving towards something, mm-hmm. that's the part that I love as an athlete. I can make it more enjoyable by staying in a field that's related to to, to athletics or training or something like that.
0: Sure, sure thing. So for those that may not be totally or as familiar as we are with with the D10, and also for those that hadn't listened to the Dave Maloney episode (laughs) of the podcast, um, the founder of the D10 that we did earlier earlier in the year, um, give us... Give us the elevator, you know, pitch on on what exactly the D10 is, and there's, there's more to it than that.
1: Yeah, so the the D10 is a nationwide series of of, of, of athletic events uh, where athletes compete in ten different um, ten different events, ranging from a four hundred meter uh, dash to a five hundred meter row, and there's eight others that I won't bother you with right now, but. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's an athletic event that, that is is it, it's actually a fundraising event that moonlights as an athlete as an athletic event. So all of our all of our athletes have to uh, raise a specific minimum um, to uh, a minimum, and they raise a specific amount of money um, for our charities for our beneficiaries. We raise money specifically for pediatric oncology research and treatment uh, with a group called Poetic, which is a loose affiliation of hospitals and research centers that share um share either participation if you will or or or, or the research um, of specific studies and and, and and new treatments for kids cancer so it's a pretty awesome thing we're in uh we're in five markets right now New York Boston Chicago San Francisco and here in Houston um last year we raised just over two million dollars and I think this year is our inflection point so I think we're going to see
0: that big big bump this year everything's pointing towards that right now and we're really fired up about it it is an amazing event for an amazing cause. Definitely check it out at thed10.com. I have been a part of it for the last two years uh, and look forward to, to being a part of it for many more years and supporting the causes to come on there. So now I'm going to turn it to kind of what's called training over 40 a little there bit you also. Up. Okay, <laughs> <There you laughs> Transition from, from the actual D10 and the athletic, the I like that. What I really like about it the most is the athletic
1: um, mm-hmm. or the
0: executive athleticism that mm-hmm. it is. It, it combines those individuals that are juggling with, with what guys like you and I are, which is work and mm-hmm. family and life and age and balance and finance and all of this all this shit that we have to deal with on a day to Oh, so we can cuss. Yeah, you can say whatever all you right. want, okay? Fair enough. Yeah, who <laughs> knows who's listening? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. But all this shit that we are dealing with yeah. that does make it so challenging to find a place still in our world to train um, and and focus on he- our own health and our own wellness, which a lot of people kind of put on the back burner for periods of time, certainly, or maybe forever, and we hope not, but, you know, to find people to train with, to, mm. to find people that place their, their, have a place in their world for fitness and for health right. and wellness. Um who may want to continue to compete, if you will, which is hard to find things to compete in, and you want to get right. your competitive juices back and 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 flowing again, and that's all the stuff that's really drawn me to to what you guys have done with with the D10. Um, you're a couple years younger than I am. Uh, I'm forty, just turned forty five. Um, so I'm going to ask you because you are the Olympic athlete who is trained at the very highest level. How? Are you adjusting to kind of training at this age and stage of, of your life? And what's your kind of focus and philosophy about it?
1: Yeah, so, um, again, that's something that's taken me a little while to, to wrap my head around as well. So when I was training full-time, you know, I'd have the whole day to get my training done. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily take the whole day. But uh, as you get older and as your responsibilities grow beyond just that of training, uh, you really have to be efficient with your time. And, uh from my standpoint and actually training in a traditional commercial gym now for the first time, I've never, I've always trained in college gyms or my own gym um, and uh, like my basement kind of thing. I had a full gym in my basement back home, so uh, back in Athens. And um, so when you, when you start moving out, you realize, okay, I've gotta be very efficient with, with my time. And that means understanding what exercises are important, uh, prioritizing those, And then figuring out the loads uh, afterwards. Why are you doing this? Like if you're training just to stay in shape, you probably don't need to push the weight as heavy. Um, If you're training because you want to get a little stronger, then yeah, push the weight. You know, Things like that. It's just some real basic tenets of of training. But for me, as I've gotten older and trying to be efficient in the weight room as well uh, with my time, I still can't go into the weight room and say, I'm just going to get a workout today it's not a good way for me to do that. So I have to write things down. You know, you and I had a workout a couple and I was not, uh, not doing some feelings. I was coming back from a, a little bit of an illness, but, um, you know, we ended up not, it was a really unstructured workout and, and, and it was a fun sort of mm-hmm. let's talk and throw some weight, little weight around. But, um, but I, I find that I have to have everything written down. I have to be intentional with that time. Um, it's not free time for me. It never has been. So that's, that's why I keep it that way. So I, if I don't have a, a program that I'm working on, Uh, I will go in there and I will lose motivation and interest very quickly, Mm -hmm. uh, even though I love doing it. Um, So uh, from my standpoint, if I were giving you some cues, I'd say set your workout time to no more than an hour, Uh, especially as you get older. And this is actually something that they've actually shown with athletes, competitive athletes, is that after an hour, the quality of work drops pretty substantially uh, and the risk for injury goes up very high. As an older athlete or as an older, I, I say we're all athletes because we're still competing in the game in this game called life, right? So, like, as an older athlete, keep it to less than an hour, get in, get your warm-up in, prioritize your warm-up, and prioritize anything that's bothering you. If you want to lift a little weight heavier, say, okay, this is the exercise that we're going to work on. Boom. Hit that up. Finish it off. Make sure you do your cardio because that's the other thing that I really hate doing, but uh unfortunately uh science has a lot of evidence to suggest it's very beneficial
0: <laughs> i have tried do to that. Dispute what's that the, what's the phrase you know what do you do for strength i lift weights what do you do for cardio i lift weights faster <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right okay. exactly
1: <laughs> spoken, spoken like a crossfitter that's good <laughs> the uh it was well, true though too uh you can lift weights for a cardio element but uh but uh yeah, it's just it's just prioritizing things and and making sure you go in with a plan. I think most people our age and in our situations like they don't start off their day, their week, their month without a game without some game plan. Why would you let any other area of your life where you're trying to improve or at least maintain uh why would you why would you treat that any differently? And I think some people just are very dismissive of that. They want to go in and do that, oh, I'm just going to go in and you know um I'm going to get on the treadmill and then I go like over. And the next thing you know, you see somebody that's spending 45 minutes doing some different kinds of flies and bicep work. Guess what, guys? While biceps and arms may look good, I've never seen someone die because their arms were too small. Like, what I have seen is someone fall apart because their core strength, their legs weren't strong enough or whatever. It, but uh, we spend a lot of time on things that aren't very efficient uses of our time either. So mm-hmm. if you're working small muscles a lot a lot, and that's all you're doing, you're not going to get a good use of your time. That's a, not a very efficient use. Stick with the big lifts uh, and, then, and then use the accessory lifts to address any uh, impingements or,
0: or structural issues that you're having. Good, good stuff. There is a trend. Things become this trend of calling everybody an athlete. You know, mm-hmm. we're all as you, we're all athletes mm-hmm. now. Everybody's an athlete. like an athlete. All these other, I and it may be a crossfit thing or some of the all these other things that are coming out. High intensity interval training, and everybody's apparently an athlete. And I've and I've wavered on this for a while. And I'll be the first. I don't, I'm not an athlete. Like okay, like you're an athlete. Okay, The people that I see, for the most part, in some of like, these classes or boxes or other places, and they get the t-shirts and they're cool and they say athlete on them. And you know, I don't know. I don't know if I ever really want to necessarily consider myself an athlete because I see that the way things are being pushed or that prioritization mm-hmm. of, oh, I can – go crush myself for this hour, you know, here, mm-hmm. but then the rest of my life is falling apart, if you will. Sure. I don't feel good. <coughs> things are hurting and everything else. So I think there's also this, this perception of like, everyone has to be an athlete now or train like an athlete. Mm-hmm. But to your, to your point, and it has, there has to be, again, some kind of balance or, or realization of, you know, am I only performing well in the gym or is the risk outweighing the potential reward? And this is stuff that, you know, that I, I wrestle with from a competitive standpoint also, you you go into, I can't win every workout, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't compete every day like some of these other things. And there's got to be times when you dial it up and times that you dial it back. And I think, I think that's getting lost mm-hmm. maybe is where kind of a bit of <laughs> it's getting lost in workouts that are being written or programmed that basically seem to me like the sole intention is to drive people into the ground versus not, versus build them back up again. And if you don't end up on the floor at the end of it, then you haven't really yeah. given your all to this stuff. And I think it's a it's a slippery slope, you know? Especially um, as you again get a little older. And I'm not going to go in there. This is just my ranting a little bit though of you know you walk in and it's I'm not going to go toe to toe necessarily with some 20 something, okay? Who doesn't have the same things going on in life that I have, even though you really want to. That's really hard to check yourself. You know, right. to check your ego too.
1: Yeah. So I've I have, I have, well, I've got a lot of responses to I think what you just said. I think first of all, um, I do take issue with the fact that that or with the statement that uh, not everybody's an athlete. I think that the difference between you know, there's a competitive athlete and there's someone who wants to train like an athlete. So what does that really mean? Well, training like an athlete is just effort with intent. Like, are you really trying to move, like move the dial on something? Yep. Are you trying to lose weight? Are you trying to get, you know, are you trying to get bigger arms to go against myself? There, you know, what is your goal with this? It's purposeful, purposeful yeah. effort. What, what, what? The the struggle that I see right now in the fitness world, which I will say they do not train like athletes, is they like to use this term, and they've basically perverted this term. of, have trained, hey, we're going to work out like athletes today. World class athletes don't grind themselves to a pulp every single day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they work hard, and they work at a higher level than you than than than, than you do, than I do now, than most people do because they're world class athletes. So yes, their total effort, their total output may be much higher than yours, but that doesn't make that doesn't mean that they're working that much harder than you are relatively speaking. They're working their 85 or 90% is a lot higher, and that you got to remember that. So they, people pervert this term of train like an athlete to say, let's grind them. Um, I can tell you in 15 years of training professionally, uh, I may have had two workouts that whole time, three workouts um, that whole time that I literally was floored by and could not move for more than a few minutes. And uh, I know I'm a shot putter, so we're not, we don't really do running workouts and things like that. But still, um, people, like, hard workouts mean good workouts. They're not the same. That's not the case. But, like, people, the general public wants to go in because they don't follow a training program. They go to exercise programs. And the difference is that I can go to an exercise program and step into it at any point during the cycle, if you will, and – to go and have a hard workout and walk out completely flamed because they, the people that are marketing and building that business know that I'm probably not going to be there for another three or four days, so I can kind of recover from that. Mm. I'm not saying you can't have great workouts and you can't in great shape, get in great shape doing the exercise program, but the exercise programs that sell themselves as the hardest workouts in the you know the industry, they are. Um, they're really just that. They're just a hard workout, they're exercise for the sake of exercise. So it's, 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 it's let's take a shotgun approach to, to this and see how you fare on the backside. What ends up happening for most people is they either do very well with it because they, they can just grind like that, and that's just who mm-hmm. they are, or, and this is actually, I mean, this is not an either or, this is just an and, um, they get hurt and they blame themselves. Again, in 15 years of training, The only times I really got hurt were when I made a mistake in how I was doing my, how I was executing my programming. Like, and I, and it was a clear thing. Like, there was a day, you know, twice in my career, 12 years apart, I tore my pec. But I did that because one day I didn't warm up properly, and I thought I was warmed up properly, and I was just, it was just a freaky thing, and it just happened this, the the second time is I accelerated the, increased the weight that I was working on too short a period. So I went from basically, you know, Say sixty-five percent to two weeks later, doing eighty-five percent weight, and that was just too fast. Even though my body felt like it could handle the weight, it was too fast. I was discounting, um, discounting the uh, the aging factor in my in my training. So anyway, my point is that you don't get hurt on a regular basis doing workouts, mm-hmm. like doing a well organized workout. You get hurt on a regular basis doing something that's inappropriate for you. So. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I how I look at that. So I do I do believe that uh, there is like we should all train like athletes if your intent is to improve, because an athlete trains with you know the desire to have measurable results, and that's training like an athlete, which means you actually have to have a program that is
0: designed to achieve those results. So anyway, yeah, the future, the next. Uh, you're here now in Houston. Yep, it's been a little while. Um, been a year yet? Year, year, year. May year and a May. May, May is a year. Okay. What are you looking to accomplish, personally, professionally? Yeah. Uh, making Houston home, if that's kind of the, the long term plan, yeah. or.
1: I mean, my so. wife and I don't. We don't like to move around a lot. I don't think uh, we like to travel and do those things, but uh, we we love to have that hometown feeling. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully Houston will be home. Uh, professionally, uh, I'm really excited about the opportunities that we have in front of us right now with the D10. We have a, some big goals. I mean, we'd love to be able to, you know, put ourselves in a situation where we're raising 10 or $15 million a year for uh, for pediatric, pediatric oncology research and treatment. I mean, that's just a awesome ambition to have. Um, you know, family-wise, I, I, we've got two kids and we're not gonna grow anymore, I don't think so. <laughs> So I just want my family to be happy and have all the opportunities that they uh, that they want in, in life and uh, socially like I, I'm really enjoying uh, getting to know this community and being a part of this this thing that uh, this this little city called Houston. Um, it's taken me a while to figure out the whole geography of the place, but. Uh, good good luck. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> that's massive. If you if you kind of hang out pretty much inside the loop, you can figure it out. But once I venture outside, you know, it's, it's still a, it, it's still a lost cause uh, for me on that. But very cool. Yeah, listen, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's been great getting to know you. Great getting to work with you. Uh, being inspired by everything that you're doing, everything that the D10 is doing, and you've accomplished. In in your career, so I'd love to have you back for part two as there's more stuff to talk about Anytime, and the initiatives man. that are that are going on. Adam Nelson on the Greg Shiman podcast today. Thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Shiman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit Innsgroup.net.